Are you going to use any of this stuff? Uh, hymn book, I guess. Because <clears throat> I'll be leaving. I'm leaving hymns, right? No, uh, Jenny is. Wonderful. <clears throat> Did you not know that? Yeah. Tiffany, I'm sorry. so glad that you're here to lead singing. <laughs> just now leave that. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Welcome to Faith Presbyterian Church, our Christmas Eve service. Just have two announcements. One is um, we will explain what to do with these later on, but one thing that you will not do is once you get it lit, don't do this. Let the person that is not lit come to your light, so otherwise you'll be dripping stuff all over the place. That's that. That's it. The other thing is that tomorrow we do have worship at 11 o'clock. We are not having Sunday school, uh, both neither adult nor children's Sunday school. So, But uh, please come either here or to your own place of worship tomorrow. This is a worship service, and that means that the most important person here is the one you can't see, our Lord Jesus Christ. He lives and reigns and is seated above in the heavenly places, and yet through the Holy Spirit, he dwells with his people here. And so we are entering, entering into worship with him, and so I know that uh, there's always, whenever you come to worship, there's always distractions, there's always things that you're thinking about. Kids are thinking about presents and uh, all sorts of things happening, and uh, we have a prelude, and that prelude is really designed for you to try to push aside all those other thoughts and to remember that we're here to worship Christ. And so uh, I guess it's Coleman's going to come on up. So why don't you come on up here, Coleman, and we're going to have a prelude uh, so that you can focus your hearts.
Our call to worship is in John 8:12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The call to worship is something that I say, but it really is God himself calling you into his presence to worship him. And that should be really a, a, a glad thought that God wants you to come into his presence. He wants you to worship him. Now, the worship of God requires a couple of things, but one thing that's very important that I want to emphasize today is that in order to worship God, you have to acknowledge that he is the Lord of your life. And you should want to give him all the honor and glory and submission that he deserves. That's what it means to worship him. It's not simply to sing songs or or to uh, pray prayers, but to actually, in your heart, surrender yourself to the one who is Lord of all. During the Christmas season, we celebrate that the light of God has come into a world of darkness. And what we mean by darkness is evil. That there's a lot of evil in the world, and that evil originates around people worshiping themselves or the things that they do more than the God who is light above And by light, we mean that which is holy and good. And so when we say that the light has come into the world, we really mean that he who is both holy and good has stepped down into a very dark world. Now, the world is dark, but more so than the world is dark, our hearts left to themselves are dark. And one of the the verses that I wanted to read in leading us to the call to worship is, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. And I think as you come to worship today, the prayer that you can have is that the Lord would not just shine his light out into the world, but he would shine it into your heart. That he would take that which is dark and he would bring it to light. He would take that which is evil and make it good. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And that's the, that's the, the prayer as, we, as God calls us into his presence. We're both acknowledging that he is the light, but we're also praying that he would continue that work in our hearts to lighten us make us who he is, that he would shine into the depths of our hearts. So again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, we worship you. But as we worship you, we ask and plead that you would continue to shine your light in the dark recesses of our heart, that you would enlighten us, that you would make us who we are not by ourselves, that you would purge the evil, and that we would follow you and walk in the light of your goodness and your holiness. Help us this night to worship you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, come, let us adore him. 
and join me in singing number 218, Angels from the Realms of Glory.
in your bulletin, we have the affirmation of faith from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'll read the question, and then we'll read together the answer. What do we pray for in the Lord's Prayer when we pray, Thy kingdom come? In the petition, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Now turn in your hymnals to number 200. It came upon a midnight clear. Scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It's an interesting passage on this night when we talk and sing about the peace on earth. Uh, much trial and trouble and sadness uh, occurred because of Christ coming into the world. There's a dividing line between those who worship Christ and those who hate the Christ. <clears throat> Let us join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, you and your Son and your Holy Spirit are the light of the world. And Father, we confess to you that rather than loving the light, we often love the darkness. And we live in a world, as Isaiah says, that calls evil good and good evil. And Father, we are in desperate need of you to work afresh in our hearts. No matter where we are this night, we know that we have not yet been conformed completely to the image of Jesus Christ. And we ask in your mercy, that just as Christ has come into the world 2,000 years ago, that he would also penetrate into the dark recesses of our hearts. We know that your light is stronger than the darkness. We acknowledge that you are able to dispel even the darkest of darks places. And I ask God that you would do that in us. I pray for those who have strayed away from the truth, that you would draw them back to yourself. I pray for those who have never embraced you, that they would
cry out to you. Seeking your salvation. Father, we also know that even as those who have been given light in this world, we still live in a very trying and difficult season. Some people have their families together, and there are great joys and fellowship and enjoyment, but some families are broken and divided. Some families um, are divided by space, but some are divided by, by their belief. And I pray, Father, that you would comfort those who are in sorrow. That you would encourage your people this night. And Father, we also pray for those in our midst who are sick, that have physical struggles and challenges. I pray for Dalton Luckadoo. I am thankful that Dalton has a strong faith in you. He is a model to many of us. But I know that he deals with physical struggles all the time. And he's had some pains in his abdomen and some very difficult, fearful things. I pray for his parents, pray for him, the rest of his family, that you would give them confidence that you are in control, and that they would rest their hearts in you. And we do not hesitate to pray that you would do a miracle in Dalton's body, that you would heal some of the things that are uh, beyond the doctor's healing. We just thank you for him. Father, we pray for uh, our missionaries, Lyndon and Gemma. We pray that the gospel would go into the world that we would not hoard it, but that we would freely take it out into the world. And we pray that Lyndon and Gemma would get their visas and passports, that they could go to their place uh, of work and mission. And we ask that you would also take care of their children and take care of all the logistics of their move, which is coming up very soon. Father, I pray for our government leaders. I ask that you would... If there are some that would act like Herod, I pray that you would change their hearts. I pray that there were, our government leaders would be like the wise men who would offer themselves to you and give you praise and adoration and worship. Father, I pray for this cold weather that we've had across our country. I live in a, in a warm house. But many struggle with cold and maybe lack of food. And we ask God that you would be merciful to those who are suffering because of the cold weather. (coughs) Father, I thank you for the preached word. It It is the means by which you normally use to awaken faith in our hearts. And I pray that you would empower Danny to bring your word to us. I thank you for him. I thank you that he loves the word of God and loves you. And I just ask that you would use him this night to draw us into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us pray together the prayer our Lord Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Please join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him above here below. Alleluia, Alleluia. Praise Him above 
Well, Merry Christmas once again. It's a nice crowd come out and brave the Arctic temperatures, and I appreciate that. I guess the more we have, the warmer we are, right? <clears throat> well, if you will, please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Yes, I said Revelation chapter 12. Calling this the, the War of the Incarnation. When we think of Christmas, when we think of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we rightly think about things like peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We think of the words of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who said that the Messiah had come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The baby in the manger, the son of God, the very essence of deity in human form. His coming is our deliverance. It is our salvation. He is our peace. But the peace that Jesus brought actually created conflict. It actually created war. Particularly this war is against the oldest evil in all of creation. It's against Satan himself. And that war, which is being waged right now behind the scenes of the work of Jesus Christ, is what we are going to take a look at tonight in Revelation chapter 12. So please open your Bibles with me, and let us hear the word of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that, she might, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who kept 
the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, a long reading. The first Christmas present that I want to give you all tonight, I know you're going to be excited, is a big bag of hermeneutics. Now, <clears throat> I'm, I'm just kidding, it's going to be a small bag. Uh, hermeneutics, if you don't know, is just Bible interpretation. So, basically, when we approach the book of Revelation, it's not like reading Romans chapter 8. It's not like reading Matthew chapter 3, which Mike read tonight, uh, or or some other section of of the Gospels. The literature type is not literal. It's mostly symbolic. And what much of the book of Revelation is doing is actually pulling the curtain back so that we can see behind the scenes in the spiritual world. And the spiritual world is described to us in in all this symbolic language. For instance, in the book of Revelation, John has visions of heavenly beings worshiping around the throne of God. We don't see that. John reveals it to us by opening the curtain. He sees trumpets being blown that that bring judgment down to the earth. He sees bowls having these curses poured out of them onto the earth. And those aren't literal bowls. That, That is symbols describing God judging the earth. He sees terrible, hideous monsters rising up out of the ocean. This is all symbolic language that displays very important spiritual realities. Now in Revelation 12, the first thing John sees is a radiant woman, beautiful woman, who's being stalked by a hideous beast, a red seven-headed dragon. It's more like a hydra if you're familiar with Greek mythology. And this is how John's revelation depicts what I'm calling the ancient hatred of the incarnation. In the first six verses, we see the beginning of the great war. The dragon, who is very easy to identify, verse 9 tells us that the dragon is Satan. The dragon is poised and he's ready to devour his enemy as soon as the enemy comes forth, as soon as he's born. The dragon's enemy, of course, is the child, Jesus Christ, the one who is going to rule with a rod of iron. And in the incarnation, Jesus is bringing peace. He's coming to deliver a people. But in doing so, he is provoking the wrath of a deadly enemy, this dragon, Satan, the enemy of peace. Now, who is the woman described in verse 1? She is described as having a glorious appearance. She's clothed with the sun, and on her head is a crown of 12 stars. Some might say this is Mary, and I guess that could be kind of shoehorned into the meaning. But I think that's too simplistic for the book of Revelation. I believe that it's actually the church in both the Old and the New Testaments. And verse 17 seems to imply this when it identifies the woman's children as those who keep the commandments of God and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the beautiful appearance of this woman. This is how Jesus Christ sees you right now, church. He sees you as this beautiful woman. As we look around at the church, we don't see perfection. Do you see perfection anywhere? There's divisions Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, we don't get along. There's all these divisions. There's failures. There's doubting. We don't trust God like we ought to. But Jesus doesn't see those things. He sees the beauty. When your Savior describes his people in a vision to John, he shows her as as beautiful, so beautiful that she is clothed with something so glorious that you can't even look upon it. The glory of the sun. And this should be the first encouragement to us as we are examining the the difficulty of being in this war. Jesus was determined to wage this war and provoke the dragon because Jesus loves his bride and he wants to make her beautiful. And if you are part of that bride, the incarnation of Christ should be precious to you. Because it is through the incarnation 
that Jesus makes you beautiful, that he removes all those spots and all those blemishes and makes you pleasing to him. Now, of course, Satan does not feel those good feelings of us being beautiful. He has different feelings towards us. He has hatred for us. And he hates us. Why? Because he hates the child. He hates our Lord. And his hatred has been poised against this child ever since Genesis 3.15. If you're familiar with Genesis 3.15, after Satan had tempted Adam and Eve, God is dealing out curses. And in the middle of the curses, God wedges in this beautiful promise. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So there's the war. The war is between the serpent and the woman. Between the serpent, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And John's vision of a, of a dragon crouching, waiting to devour this child is what is behind the scenes in the spiritual world from Genesis 3.15 to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is what's going on behind the scenes. Satan began his work quickly with Cain and Abel. He used the envy of Cain to murder Abel, but God gave Seth. And Eve said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel. And the promise survived through Seth. And when we come to the Exodus, Satan used Pharaoh to destroy multitudes of the children of God's people. But who escaped? Moses escaped, and Moses delivered God's people from the bondage in Egypt, and the promise survived through Moses. And of course, we're all familiar with, with the hatred, Mike read about it tonight, the hatred that Satan inflicted through King Herod as he tried to murder the offspring. Jesus was spared, but we are told that Herod killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region from two years old and younger. And Rachel wept. Now, Revelation 12, 5 tells us that the woman, the church, gives birth to the child, the one who is to rule over all the nations. But the child escaped. The child was caught up to the throne of God. The offspring ultimately escaped, the ultimate offspring escaped the devouring attempts of the dragon. And the promise survived. The ultimate promise survived and escaped the wrath of Herod that was being driven by Satan. And this brings us to our second point, the triumph of the incarnation. Verses 7 to 10 say, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with it. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now before we get into this activity where Michael is fighting Satan and casting him and the angels down uh, to the earth, I want to kind of back up to chapter 3 just for a second. Or I'm, I'm sorry, verse 3. In verse 3, John describes Satan as a seven-headed dragon with ten horns and crowns on those ten horns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. These are all symbols of Satan's great power, of Satan's great authority, of Satan's ability to deceive, of Satan's ability to wage war. Now the stars being swept down, there's, there's different opinions on what that means. It's either the fallen angels, which I think most people lean towards that. It's the fallen angels who were deceived by Satan when Satan fell. Or it's the lives that Satan destroyed in all of his attempts to devour 
the, the offspring of the woman. Now, I mentioned this description of Satan because I want you to see how much power, even honor, even respect that the scriptures give to Satan. He is a magnificent creature, powerful and terrifying. And although we as Christians should not fear him, it doesn't mean that we should disrespect him, and it definitely doesn't mean that we should underestimate him. He's ancient, and he's wise. He's crafty. I cringe when I hear Christians talking to Satan and talking down to Satan. The Bible says, resist Satan. The Bible says, flee from Satan. The Bible says, be watchful of Satan. These commands imply respect for your enemy. And that's exactly what John's picture in Revelation 12 shows us, as an enemy who is worthy of our respect. Jude tells us that even Michael the archangel would not rebuke Satan when they were fighting over the body of Moses. And Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, although Satan is powerful and although Satan is worthy of our respect, verses 7 to 11 give us a glimpse of just how the incarnation destroyed Satan's power to accuse the brothers. In the Old Testament, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, in Job chapter 1, Satan was actually able to come before the throne of God. It's like he was allowed in to come and present cases before the throne of God. And he comes in and he's, he tells God, well, you know, Job, he only loves you. He's only faithful to you because you, you prosper him. You make him healthy and wealthy. If you took all that stuff away from him, he would curse you. He'd be done with you. So what does God do? To prove to Satan that Job's faith is real, he says, go take it all. Just don't take his life. And the whole book of Job is all about how Job's faith perseveres even though everything was taken away from him. Now before the incarnation, Satan seemed to have a case against God. God never gave an answer for how he was able to pardon people like David and Moses and Job. The question just kind of lingered in the Old Testament. How could God overlook the sin of his people and remain just? Well, this question was answered in the incarnation. When Christ joined himself to humanity, when he redeemed humanity, when he took the wrath of God for his people, it became evident that Satan no longer had a case against God's people, and he was cast out of the presence of God. Now, I don't, nobody knows when this happened. I don't know that the, maybe somebody knows, I don't know. Uh, the Bible doesn't really tell us. But sometime during the work of Christ, Michael and the angels kicked Satan out of heaven. And verse 10 tells us that Satan had no more right to accuse the saints day and night before the throne of God. But Michael and the angels are not the only ones who overcome Satan. Look at verse 11. And they have overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. If you are looking for an application of this vivid nightmare of a verse, that's basically what it is, this verse is it. This is the application of this chapter. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are striving to follow him and live for him and you are eagerly, eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ, you have overcome Satan with the blood of the lamb. Satan used to stand before the throne of God accusing the saints. Can't you hear him saying, David, he's a murderer. He's an adulterer. How could you favor him? Moses is a murderer. Samuel, prophet Samuel, not the best dad. What about Peter? Arrogant, full of himself, 
always running headlong, zeal without knowledge, forsaking his Lord. James and John wanting to have thrones sitting above the other disciples. And Thomas, the one who would not even believe in the resurrection until he placed his hands in the wounds of the risen Christ. And you know what? Satan was right. Satan was right about them. And he was right to say it about us. You and I deserve the justice of God. And if Satan still said that about us today, he would be right. We deserve it. We are not worthy. But there was one who was worthy. And he took the wrath of God for us. And now, he's shaping us into the picture of that beautiful woman that you saw at the beginning of the chapter. And that is how he sees us now, without the spots, without the blemishes, without the divisions. Therefore, God no longer tolerates Satan's accusations against his beloved bride in heaven. God will not hear him. But that does not keep Satan from speaking those same lies to your flesh. So when Satan brings accusations against you, do not answer him. Turn to the one whose blood has overcome those accusations. Let him give an answer to Satan. Let him be the one to rebuke Satan for you. Now, the defeat of Satan and the triumph of the incarnation be a wonderful place to stop a Christmas Eve sermon, right? Let's just, let's just pack it up and go home, but the text won't let us do that. So I want to apologize for that. It's the word of God. <clears throat> We have not yet come into the full realization of peace and victory yet. Satan has been overcome. He is a defeated foe. But you know what he's not doing? He's not crawled in a cave somewhere or a corner somewhere and sitting around pouting and crying. He's active. And that brings us to our third point. Satan's continued resistance of the incarnation. <clears throat> Verses 12 to 17 say, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan is defeated. He's kicked out of heaven by the angels. The child of the woman is in heaven ruling with a rod of iron over his kingdom. But where is Satan now? He's on earth and he's mad because he knows that his time is short. He can't devour the child anymore, but what can he do? He can harass the woman he can chase the woman and her offspring, and that is exactly what he's doing today. The text says that the woman is taken by eagle's wings to the wilderness, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, or three and a half years. This is a parallel to verse 6, uh, where John says that the woman fled to the wilderness, and she was, she was prepared by God, in which she was nourished for 1260 days. Now, what this is, is this is mostly, New Testament authors love to do this. They patch all these ideas and symbols from the Old Testament together and just kind of ball up a meaning and throw it at you. <clears throat> and this is mostly language from the Mosaic Covenant. You can probably see this, the wilderness language, 
One of the biggest times in redemptive history was the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. The language of being carried away on the wings of a great eagle, it actually comes from the Song of Moses, where Moses uh, was singing of God's deliverance from the Egyptians. The 1260 days, or the three and a half years, is most closely associated with the time of Elijah. Uh, Elijah prayed for a famine in Israel during the reign of King Ahab. And James tells us that that famine lasted three and a half years, or a time and times and half a time. So during the time that Elijah was in that cave, God had ravens bring him provisions, and God nourished him. It wasn't, he didn't live in the lap of luxury, but God kept him safe and nourished him and kept him away from the wicked king and, of course, the wicked queen. In the same way, God protects and nourishes his church today as we are in the wilderness. And he's keeping us safe from the raging of Satan. We also see God's protection of his people in the imagery of the flood that comes out of the mouth of the dragon. This is all, like I said, this is like a vivid nightmare, all these crazy images. Uh, the, the flood is coming out of the mouth of the dragon. It wants to sweep away the woman. And then the earth opens up. The earth cracks open and swallows all this water and, and saves the woman. Well, what is it that comes literally from the mouth of Satan? It's not water, is it? It's lies. Lies flow from the mouth of Satan. And this is the picture here, the lies of Satan coming after the woman. Now, the, the, the imagery of, of the flood and the earth cracking open, this comes from number 16. And in number 16, there was a rebellion led by a man named Korah against Moses. Korah was a false prophet. He was speaking lies against Moses. He was speaking lies against God. He actually told the people of God that God took us out of the land flowing with milk and honey. Where do you think he's talking about? Egypt. He actually said, when you were in bondage back in Egypt, that was the land flowing with milk and honey. And God took you out of that land and brought you to the wilderness to kill you. So, in essence, Korah's lie was that you are better off in bondage, you are better off in sin, than you are in a place where you're suffering, but you're following after the will of God. Well, God protected his people back then, and the earth actually literally, literally cracked open and swallowed Korah, and all of his followers alive, and that's how God preserved his people from that rebellion. Now, God doesn't crack the earth open today, at least I haven't seen it, probably happening a lot if he did it today, but God doesn't protect his church in this literal way today. In Revelation 1.16, John says that a sharp two-edged sword comes out of the mouth of the risen Christ, and I hope we know what that language of sharp two-edged sword is referring to. It's referring to the word of God coming forth out of the mouth of your Savior. God protects you. He protects your testimony. He protects your faith against that flood of lies coming out of the mouth of Satan with the word of God coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. When Satan lies to you about the goodness of God, when he tells you that you are a worthless sinner and that you are not that image of the beautiful woman, Use the truth of his word to figuratively open the ground up under his lies and swallow those lies and destroy the work of his deceit. We are the woman in the wilderness and we must make use of all of God's provisions that he has given us to preserve us until our Joshua, Jesus Christ, comes to take us to the promised land. Now, I would like to conclude with two applications. Babies, I'm almost done. <clears throat> you guys are doing great. The first application is, oddly, resist peace. Resist peace. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul tells us that people will be saying, there is peace and security, but then sudden destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. 
The peace that the world, world is preaching to you is peace with Satan, peace with your flesh. But Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Jesus' sword divides people into a war between those who side with the child and those who side with the dragon. And we all have to ask ourselves tonight, which side of the war are we on? And Revelation 12 tells us in verse 11 that not only did the saints overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb, but they also loved not their lives unto death. And for the saints living in this world, it is not a life of settling in. When you're in the wilderness, you're intense. You're not settling in. It is warfare. It is survival. It is fleeing the enemy. It is being watchful, and it is knowing that ultimately, Peace is found, ultimate peace is found in only two ways. Either through death or through the return of Jesus Christ. So don't make peace with this world because it cannot truly be found planted in this world. Now, ironically, the second application is embrace peace. So... Refuse peace and embrace peace. The war that we're waging in the wilderness, oh man, it can be tiring. Aren't you tired from it? Aren't you weary? Immorality, hatred of Christ, they seem to flow downhill so easily into the hearts and minds of men. But we have to remember that the incarnation promise that the angels gave to us when they said, peace on earth, goodwill to men, that will ultimately prevail. It's going to prevail. Micah chapter 5 says this, speaking of Jesus Christ, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The one who is your peace is right now sitting in heaven, victorious, enthroned, mediating, disabling all the accusations of Satan towards you. He cannot be conquered. He cannot be overthrown. His victory is inevitable. You are still here, wandering in the wilderness, still waging war, but you are also united to the one who is your peace. You have an unbreakable union to Jesus Christ in heaven who is your peace. And this Christmas, as you gather together with your friends and your family and you celebrate the incarnation, remember that true peace is only possible because Jesus Christ became a man and because you are united to that man. You can only have peace on earth because the one who is your peace is reigning secure and victorious in heaven. Amen. Now I'd like to ask everyone who has lighters to come around. If everybody would please stand. And I believe Silent Night is number 210. And I'm going to turn my microphone off so nobody can hear me sing. <laughs>